Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. You can consider checking it out at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Anand Safi. He works as an engineering manager, but is also a tech mentor and startup advisor. My podcast isn't the first one he's been on, so I'm guessing he's pretty good at presenting. I'm interested to learn more about his journey to engineering management, the moment he realized that public speaking could be of use to him, and the difference between being a tech mentor and a startup advisor. Welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, Anand. Thank you so much, Neil, for having me. It is a pleasure to be here and talking with you. Uh, Really excited for our chat today. Excellent. So from the bit of research I did on you, I saw that you got a degree in information technology. What motivated you to get that degree? Uh, So it starts from my school days, right? Just being an academia and kind of, I was always good at, at math and uh, problem solving and, and just kind of um, uh, just anything that I had to deal with logic in approaching uh, in any problem in the academic space that kind of was paired with just the rise of computers during my school time in the early 2000s actually. So that is what got me interested into just uh, not only using the computer and just playing my normal games and just being enticed, but just a little bit deep dive into what are the uh, working dynamics on how this was kind of programmed or what would have happened, right? Uh, that sounds very fancy right now. Back then, I was just curious to go just go one level deep in terms of, wow, this is cool. Uh, how did this happen or, or what is going on? That led me to pursue kind of just a science uh, program. Uh, so back in India, this is where I did my schooling, we get a choice of either choosing the medicine field or the uh, commerce field um, uh, for finance or the science field, um, actually. And I chose science because of kind of my interest in math and computers. And that translated to progressing for a bachelor's in information technology and then a master's in information science and technology, both programs offered under the computer science department. Uh, So that's kind of how my journey started. Uh, It was a little bit intentional. So I'm not going to say that uh, I just had a Eureka moment or I had to switch career paths or everything. Fortunately, this part of my life was a little bit intentional or, or sorted out actually to begin with. Okay, so medicine, commerce, or science. That's, that, those are your three choices. And, <laughs> and arts, and arts. Uh, okay. My sister-in-law will really uh, be mad at me because she's a psychologist and took arts. So okay. I'm going to I'm, I'm gonna say yes, four fields, yes. Four fields, well, take your pick. I remember I had a, a guest on and she was from Greece. And she said that in Greece, you have to take a test and once, um, based on how you do on the test, that determines what you can study. Is it is it uh, like that in in India as well? Uh, not really. You get to choose what field you can study. But what I will say is, depending on your academic record, it does vary deeply on which focus area you end up. Uh, studying in in that field actually, right? So I need to score really kind of more than uh, the 90, 90 
fifth percentile to get into computer science in some good programs in universities versus uh, if I don't score that or if I'm kind of in the 50th percentile, then it really limits my options on some of the top science programs at, at kind of institutions that would be my first preference. Gotcha. But from, also, I saw that you got a master's in computer science. What motivated you to do that? Yeah, I think uh, I, again, I, depending on my bachelor's uh, in kind of information technology back in India, I was at a crossroads of trying to get a job in the in, um, IT field back in India and then gain experience. But uh, again, I, I just felt I was not done yet academic wise because that program in the information technology space, my four year bachelor's program was good, but I think it was a lot of kind of high level overview because for the first year or two, you do kind of a lot of shared courses with other um, departments. And then you only go into your specialization the last couple of years. So I really wanted to give myself a couple of more years to really deep dive into this field and know that, okay, what are some different avenues within this field before I go ahead and commit myself to a professional career actually, because out of that college or program, the number one job I would say uh, area was become a software engineer or become like a developer as, as people call it, like an IT dev. But I, I, as I came for my master's and realized there's so much more to computer science, whether you're working in kind of the quality engineering space, you're working in the uh, technical product management space, you're working um, kind of in, in just, uh, I would say uh, purely information technology in terms of a system space, you're working in software engineering space. So that kind of, um, I would say insight on what lies uh, within the field was just kind of uh, the reason that I attribute back to my master's. So I, I knew that you could always get a job and get settled, but I, I wanted to just kind of combine uh, the momentum I had with kind of my academic learning. Uh, so I went for my master's three months after I completed my bachelor's. I did not take any break or vacation. My friends back in India really enjoyed some great vacation time. Uh, the, the time I completed my bachelor's in May, at August, I was already in the US pursuing my master's in within a two and a half month period. Okay, so can now, now you, get a, so you get a bachelor's in India, you go to the US, you get a master's, now it's time to get a job, you, you start working as an engineer. How would you characterize your time working as an engineer? Uh, I would say the time overall has been an uphill battle. Uh, there have been a lot of learning moments. Actually, this phase now, I would say, uh, is, is way different on what is interpreted and on what kind of your professional engineering journey would be uh, back here in college. Working in the industry is different. Uh, there, there are definitely kind of uh, the own set of challenges and opportunities, actually. I'm not saying like it's it's a bed of roses, but I'm also not saying it's just thorns either. It's it's a bit of both. It's peaks and valleys, and you need to kind of really test your determination and kind of grit and, or willpower in order to stick around, right? The first couple of years, you are uh, really junior or kind of new in your career, and um, you probably soon realize in, in for in my case, in the first three to six months, like a huge gap on what was taught to me in my courses in school versus what is needed in the industry to succeed in terms of what is actually needed from a contribution wise. So a lot of the learning and kind of receiving mentorship came on the job actually. Uh, what kind of helped me is always trying to have a growth mindset and uh, just um, keeping myself accountable, but 
but not kind of being too hard on myself, right? It's really easy early on in the career to have imposter syndrome. Uh, I don't fit here, I chose the wrong field uh, to the kind of level that, uh, okay, this is easy and kind of being overconfident. So I always kind of try to strike a balance that, um, okay, I am still in the learning and growing phase. And the more I was at peace or clear within my head, the more I could convey that to my managers or my peers actually, and they would be patient in terms of just kind of uh, guiding me towards the next best step or kind of the problem resolution. So those were kind of the first three to five years as, as an engineer. I was really trying to find my niche just uh, to, to just kind of come to terms that this is the right field. This is how it's approached. Within engineering as well, uh, that field was constantly evolving over the last 10 years, actually, where as a software engineer, the the ball does not stop rolling at you're writing code or and you're done. Now I had to think about, I need to collaborate with my product and design peers actually uh, to understand what the user needs. I need to understand how am I going to push this code out to a deployment stage. These are all very technical terms, but I think my scope dramatically expanded on what is expected from a complete software engineer uh, that has changed in the industry from being a developer to a software engineer. And those terms are kind of used interchangeably, but for some companies, uh, the software engineer piece, especially when I started working for a startup in New York uh, uh, where uh, you had to wear many hats and you kind of just uh, short staff, so you kind of need to take on more roles. That really was kind of uh, impactful. Everything in the retrospect, has huge benefits in terms of how you approach situations, the amount of kind of more skill set that I could uh, possibly, um, I would say, get exposed to or take upon myself in a finite period of time. But those times really kind of were testing times, actually, if I think of back. Okay. So you get a degree, you get another degree, you start working as an engineer, but now you're going to be an engineering manager. How did your work as an engineer prepare you to be an engineering manager? Excellent question. I think people always talk about this as a transition and needing a different set of skills. While it is, uh, the time as an engineer is, is not futile or it does not go to waste, actually. There are two really important things that kind of really help me uh, as an engineering leader currently as I lead the division. First is having hands-on engineering time really helps me be a part of the technical decision-making process. So because I have been in that kind of situation, mostly what the engineers and my team are facing now may, might not be the same technologies, but the same context or the same scenario or the problem space that we're trying to approach at least helps me have some form of credible vetted perspective of my own actually. Um, and I can do the due diligence. Uh, there's a difference between using my technical foundational knowledge, whatever I have, and kind of thinking that that is right and that is the approach versus what I am saying is just that foundational knowledge really helps me connect much more easily with my engineering team, their day-to-day -day problems and situations. So there's not a top-down approach or there's no kind of distance. Um, I think I can really work with them and work together with my team. That is huge. And the second is in my later part of engineering career, I really focused on becoming a much more commercial focused engineer who was, who was kind of really onto collaboration. So I think the fact that I spent time as an engineer connecting with my product design and QA department counterparts 
really helps me in my engineering leadership and management journey because now that is a core part of my role. Like maybe even 50% of my time is stakeholder and peer collaboration and external focused actually, along with kind of an internal focus on making sure the team is delivering on its commitment and, and the morale is high on the team and everybody has what they need actually. So that focus as an engineer, uh, while they focused on a lot of heads down time sticking to kind of my engineering group, over time, I did somehow expand into just kind of understanding what the product manager's day-to-day involves, what a designer or UX research day-to-day involves, how QA's day-to-day involves, how I can embed kind of my expertise into their day to help their workflows kind of be better and smooth has really helped me in my engineering kind of leadership and management career. You know, when you were, when you were talking, one thing that really stood out to me was having that engineering experience really could help you with, with credibility with the team. One other thing I think it could help you with is knowing when they're full of crap. And <laughs> they're, they're going to say, hey, you know, this is going to take me, you know, X amount of time. You'd be like, no, nah, no, nah, I did this kind of work. Right. <laughs> you full of crap. True. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's when somebody says one day and one, and one month, both extremes definitely help in the situations. Uh, yeah, so exactly. Level setting is, is kind of, uh, yeah, as you said, really important. So, so I, I, I can fully understand that being an engineer and being an engineering manager are two completely different type of, of roles. When you became an engineer, well, now that you are an engineering manager, what kind of skills did you have to build up to be an effective engineering manager? Yeah, I would say even if I might always feel that I had that skill in me to an extent, the one that I really kind of have to continually improve is uh, building resilience and emotional strength. Uh, as an engineering manager, you get subject to a lot of kind of uh, situations and information, right? Whether it's from your executive management in terms of kind of org direction roadmap and kind of lack of clarity or transparency at times because things are being worked on to the point that you have to build individual relationships uh, with your direct reports on the team to talk about their well-being and kind of career progression actually. So. In between, just I need to hold my kind of uh, opinions dear, but to myself at times, actually, and not approach this in an emotional uh, kind of uh, way. Uh, it's uh, There is a difference that I'm now mentioning. I, I do not mean that be kind of shut off emotion-wise. I'm seeing approach with empathy and genuine care and investment versus just uh, kind of uh, being emotional in terms of kind of when there's a lack of clarity or when kind of an individual is not happy in their role. There's a lot of kind of structured method of kind of approaching this conversation, staying calm under chaos uh, that I kind of talk about. That is important. Another thing that I realized uh, and I've written an article about that is I, I realized more and more in my role that saying no is a superpower actually. What I say is it's as a new manager, it's really, you want to make your mark and kind of you want to uh, be helpful to everyone on the team and everyone in the company. And uh, you really need to own your calendar and time. Otherwise, it can quickly become a jungle gym uh, if uh, you are always available to everyone in every kind of little situation or task, actually. So just the time of like, you're not saying no by being rude or outright denying, but just trying to just seek more information or, or delegate to an extent so you can focus on your time on where kind of your org or your team needs your most help for that. Actually. Nice. 
You know, I mentioned in the intro that you're a, a tech mentor and you're a startup advisor as well. What is that? Well, when I, when you, I, I think I hear both terms and I'm kind of, I don't really know what the difference between the two of them. So in, in both of those roles, how do they differ? Right. So the mentorship part focuses on two main personas. One is um, either uh, software engineers who are new in their career, junior to mid-level, or people who are willing to break into tech. So people who really kind of need a little bit more help and support in navigating career progression and trying to understand the different kind of streams within technology and what could play well to their strengths. Um, the second type of mentorship is uh, either senior or staff engineers willing to move into engineering leadership or management or just new engineering leadership or managers like who are zero to six months into their role. So that is the type of two personas, which is mentorship. The advisory is probably only one single persona, which is founders who might or might not be technical, right? So um, trying to work with um, an existing kind of professional, uh, say he was in, in the, who was a sales leader, but is, is willing to start this company because they really believe in this idea and they need just a startup advisor to work with them in terms of understanding the technical feasibility, the go-to-market strategy, what is an MVP, like the minimum viable product look like? How do we build the prototype to get to market? So I can step in using my technical knowledge and kind of having been in startups from 20 people to eBay, which was 10,000 plus people and everything in between. And I can really kind of help with work with them in terms of a little bit of the early on technical feasibility and analysis until there's a point that the company is able to raise the funding and they can hire kind of a full-time engineering leader. So that is what I focused on where people are still in the idea inception stage or are able to kind of roll it out to the market where I can come in and kind of offer sound technical advice on how we approach development of their idea, the go-to-market strategy and kind of the feasibility or, or any funding implications, if any. Gotcha. When did you realize that speaking in front of people, just becoming more effective in communication could be a benefit to you? I would say it, it was a mix of uh, just me stepping into my roles throughout my career that just needed kind of this as a core skill over time to begin with. And then also uh, as an engineer, just full disclaimer, I, I, was, I was a very introvert person and I'm still am. I'm currently talking a lot, but uh, the whole kind of, uh, I would say strength that I play to is the art of listening, right? Like in, in conference uh, uh, meetings or, in, or, or just in team meetings as an engineer, the kind of feedback I would get from a manager or peers in, in the review cycles was, we do think you have excellent ideas and kind of you have good sound uh, things to add. Why don't you speak up more in meetings actually, right? But that was kind of just my approach or how I am kind of as a person where I would get the temperature in the room, get all the arguments kind of heard what is going on where people are trying to really run with their kind of opinion they believe in, get all of that, take it back with me, do kind of my own due diligence and then come up with a follow-up in terms of this is what I feel or something, but not in the moment actually. So that was just kind of, has shifted over the last five years, as I said, right, as my role has changed and a lot of my kind of time is simply around speaking with my people in my team, speaking with folks in the industry, speaking kind of to 
other folks in the industry through my mentorship or just conference talks and everything. So that's been a natural kind of byproduct of that, along with uh, the fact that kind of that was a critical or constructive feedback that I, I wanted to improve over time, actually. So I'm not actively trying to just always remember that I just need to say something, actually. It's still kind of very thought through in terms of what I say, but I'm a little bit more proactive in my approach versus reactive. And that shift kind of has helped me along with taking on a couple of initiatives for kind of my own personal development, right? Like I started a Toastmasters chapter at one of my previous companies where I served as a president. So that led to kind of me going in front of 20 kind of people and saying, okay, we are going to do a Toastmasters workshop today for an hour. And this is what we're going to do. Giving my first icebreaker speech where I can showcase my vulnerability to kind of my colleagues in terms of kind of what were the good and not so good learning moments of my career or kind of my personal journey. So that I think a mix of experiences and just uh, support from kind of my direct mentors and peers has has really uh, now made it at least easy for me to approach actually, right? I've not perfected the art actually. I still uh, struggle in terms of like what to say, what not to say, the structure, um, and just kind of the level of information to say, actually. But at least I can approach it with much more confidence. If you were to say to me, tomorrow I need to you to give a talk on this topic, which is somewhat familiar, I would be okay with that versus five, six years back, I would not be okay with that, I can tell you. Wow. You know, something you said, Anand, it resonated with me too, I'm also pretty introverted and the idea of just speaking out, just thinking out loud is something I, I'm never really comfortable doing or really want to do. I'm like you, I like to think about things and then maybe come back later and take in information and then come back later and, and then say something that's maybe a little more thoughtful. The people that are, that are <laughs> maybe this is wrong with me, but the people that think out loud in, in many instances, they may say something that I think is completely stupid. And now, 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 my whole I, my whole idea of them is colored by the, the by the things that they say. And I remember, and I might right. think to, I might think to myself, man, they just maybe spend maybe five, ten more minutes just thinking about that idea in their head before they actually say anything. Right? Maybe I wouldn't think that they're an idiot now. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. And and many times I did. Uh, it's not that I always had good things today. There were times when I simply resisted saying something because in my head I was like maybe this is too naive, like how would people interpret this? Or maybe this is just stating the obvious. I just don't want to fill the silence in the room by just saying something for the sake of it, actually. So that's why I kind of just hold, held back uh, in those times, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> Honestly, a lot of times, I think that's exactly what was happening. You know, right. I, I remember I could be at meetings and somebody would say something and then maybe five, 10 minutes later, someone would say the exact same thing, just <laughs> using different words. Right. And I just remember thinking, were you not listening to what that person said five, yeah. ten years ago, or were you, or you, are you just talking just to be, just to say that you contributed to the meeting? Like, yeah. you're, thirty you're late. minutes <laughs> back, we are, we are back to square one, talking about where we started the meeting with. I, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah, hundred percent. So, when it comes to the presentations that you have to give, do you ever get nervous before them? And if so, how do you deal with your nerves? Yeah, I think I, st I still absolutely get nervous because. Um, Presentations is a tricky thing. That's why I and I maybe now that I now that you say it, I, I am realizing maybe that's why I do a lot of live mentorship and startup advisory versus hosting big talks or kind of uh, just appearing at conferences, giving one hour big kind of keynotes actually 
250 to 500,000 people. That's just because uh, it's, it's difficult to determine uh, the content uh, is valuable to people or whether they got the context it applies in, right? Like the way I approach presentation, and that's why I think maybe uh, kind of it's nerve wracking is I tend to put a lot of personal experiences and things that I can personally vouch for rather than high, le high level for fetching philosophical things that this is the industry best practice, five things you should do to kind of succeed, right? I still do my presentations like five things that kind of you should do, but my title is mostly five things I learned as a thing or, or three things that I did actually, right? So I always kind of wonder whether that level of personalization, whether it kind of dismisses the audience in terms of, oh, this seems like very particular to your constraints and complex situation. And I did not get anything valuable, but at the same time, the fact that I kind of, the feedback I received after is like, oh yes, this does resonate with us as well. Or uh, I did not even think uh, until you said it, like this is kind of the exact situation that I'm in now that I take a step back and think through. So over time, I stood stuck to kind of the way I feel comfortable giving presentations and I'm not adapted or changed too much based on kind of how anyone else in the industry does it actually. So that was nerve wracking in terms of whether my content or the context I'm presenting will matter enough to people. But then I, I kind of have come to peace that it will matter to the people who see value. And I think that is what is important rather than a generic concept where they can read up probably in any industry internet resource to begin with. Got it. So if you were to give any advice to somebody who wants to get better at communicating with others, what would your top tips be? I think the first tip would be uh, just go ahead and do it. Don't think uh, much about it. Actually, it's okay if you screw up for lack of a better word, actually, you are at least from zero to somewhere. I'm, I'm probably currently reaching the 50% mark that I think I'm okay-ish at that. The second I would say is like most things in life as well, right? Trust your support group, whether that's friends or family or peers or colleagues, like do a dry run of the presentation at, at home or kind of with your colleagues whom you feel one, one click clarification, right? One uh, thing I'd like to say, whom you feel can give you truthful advice, right? You don't want to, when I say give it at home, you don't want to kind of give a presentation at home and like everyone says, oh, you were great. And they're trying to just like not make you sad or disappoint you actually. Just where kind of work with someone that whom you trust will kind of give you the right advice that this part was great, but this part was probably a little too much in the slide. Can we kind of, bring it kind of at a high level or can you expand a little bit? I think you really rushed through those three slides or that concept. I think we need to just ease the people into the presentation. I, I often get give people that feedback. Like I, I see that people when they're introducing some very targeted specific thing they want to talk about, they die right in like, what is this? And then why we are doing it? But then I asked them like probably the first two or three slides, you need to just give breathing room to the audience to kind of just settle in, kind of realize on what they should expect actually. So that is the kind of things that do dry runs actually uh, practice as well. Uh, I know people say that if you are 
trying to practice or memorize, you might screw up, but practice in terms of just timing or flow, right? You don't want your 13 minute presentation to end in 15, but you don't also want to be at just three out of 10 slides at, the, at 30 minutes, right? Because even if you practice a lot, what I end up seeing in presentations does end up being at least 20 to 30% different than what I practice, but it helps me time actually that this is an area where I think I should spend more time or this is probably kind of straightforward and people will get it actually. So uh, do a dry run and attempt um, and feel comfortable. The more you practice, the more you will start getting better at. There is no kind of training or just kind of knowledge that you can simply absorb. And then one fine day you think like, okay, now I have everything in the world. I know how to do a presentation. I'm going to do it actually. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of those tips. I think you're absolutely right. Especially that one you mentioned about timing. <laughs> that, that one, that's a big pet peeve of mine when you're given 15 minutes and the person is 20 minutes in and it's like, this was supposed to be done five minutes ago. I, I, yeah. I hate you right now. <laughs> right. true true yeah so this has been great talking to you Anand thank you for being a guest how can people get in touch with you uh thanks again uh Neil for having me it was absolute pleasure to have this candid conversation and uh, I, I would say the best way to get in touch with me is through my LinkedIn I hope most folks are on LinkedIn uh please reach out to me uh, under my name Anand Safi I absolutely make a point to review every message and kind of get back to folks on whether something I can help or I can direct you to someone in the industry to help. But I, I, I will think that is kind of a great gateway to keep up with all other things that I might be doing, like this conversation or any articles I write. I do share everything in there and connect with people pretty actively on LinkedIn. Excellent. Well, everyone, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. You can learn more about it at teachthegeek.com. Until I, Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thank you, Anand. Thanks, Neil. Bye. Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support Teach the Geek, please subscribe, share, and like on any of your favorite podcast platforms or on all of them also if you prefer to watch the episodes head on over to the youtube channel at youtube.teachthegeek.com until next time